We had our reading from Mark chapter 6, verses 1 through 6. And I've entitled this, Unbelievable Unbelief. Unbelievable Unbelief. Someone has rightly said, I believe, all unbelief is simply the belief of a lie. Because we cannot be passive in our unbelief. It's not enough to say that Adam chose not to believe in God in the garden, but probably more accurate to say Adam and Eve chose to believe a lie in the garden. That God is not good. That he's keeping back something better. And that's sort of always the case. It's not just that we failed to believe God, but we believe everything but God. You kind of heard that in Jeremiah 2. That's kind of what the prophet was saying. Hey, you've worshipped stones, trees. You've quit asking, who was it that brought us out of Egypt? Your priests have even quit asking, where's the Lord? Nobody cares. You've not just failed to believe me, but you've believed everything else but me. Romans 1 teaches us the heart of all unbelief. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Because what may be known of God is manifest or revealed in them, for God has shown it to them. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes have been clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse, because although they knew God, they did not glorify him as God, nor were they thankful, but became futile in their thoughts, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools and changed the glory of the incorruptible God into an image made like corruptible man and birds and four-footed animals and creeping things. Therefore God also gave them up to uncleanness and the lusts of their hearts to dishonor their bodies among themselves. They exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. It shouldn't be a surprise because that's exactly what the Bible tells us unbelief is like. In fact, Paul told Timothy in the latter days, men will always be learning and never able to come to the knowledge of truth. We're all stuffing something in our minds and hearts at all times. So men are never passive in their unbelief. It's always the belief of a lie. And the truth is, even those of us, Romans 1 is clearly talking about those who do not know Christ or those who always refuse to follow him. But even those of us who call Christ our Lord and who believe, our times of unbelief are belief in a lie because we've determined to believe something rather than the truth. If we tell a lie, if we think a bad thought, whatever it is, we refuse to believe God, that means we've chosen to believe something else in its place. And then doubt springs from our unbelief. Lies that we tell ourselves. So if you've been doubting God, I want you to take time to ponder what lie have you believed in the place of believing God? Because I really believe that. In my own life, it's true as well. It's not that I just have places and areas in my life where I have chosen not to believe God, but in those places, 
I have chosen rather to believe something else or somebody else. I've exchanged God's promises for the lies of Satan. And as the Romans passage says, I've chosen to serve the creature rather than the creator. Israel did it all the time. So we're never passive. And so it is within our text today in Mark chapter 6, the people of Nazareth have chosen lies over and above Jesus, who is physically before them. And so this is especially bad and willful unbelief because Jesus has returned to the place that the Bible calls his own country, Nazareth, where he was raised. He leaves Capernaum and Galilee and returns home to Nazareth, to the carpenter shop, the place where he was a boy, where everyone knew him. The one place you want to go to be received, right? The place you always think you've got. I've got, if nothing else, I can go home and be understood. Yet it's here that Jesus makes this remarkable statement. A prophet is not without honor except in his own country among his own people, in his own house, in his hometown. We are told by Mark that Jesus experiences this marvelous unbelief, verse 6. He marveled at their unbelief, or because of their unbelief. This word marveled is used some 40 times in the New Testament, and it's almost always used in reference to Jesus, but it's always almost used in reference to people's reaction to Jesus, not Jesus' reaction to people. For example, in 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 10, <coughs> speaking of Jesus' come return, Jesus' return, it says, when he shall come to be glorified in his saints and to be admired, and that word is marveled at, in all them that believe, because our testimony among you is believed, Paul said in that day. We are told that one day when Jesus returns, everything that's left on earth will admire him. All his saints will marvel at him. Previous to this chapter in chapter 5, we are told that the one who used to be a demoniac that Jesus cast the demons out of into the pigs and they ran off the cliff and this man was standing whole before all the people. Jesus wouldn't take him with him, if you remember that story. He made him stay. And he went all through the Decapolis, his home area, proclaiming what Jesus did for him. And we are told there by Mark, and all the people marveled at him. They were in awe of this man and what Jesus had done for him. So it's a word of extraordinary circumstances. And it means what you think it would mean to gaze at and wonder. Now think about this statement. It's an amazing scriptural statement. Jesus, the Lord of glory, God in the flesh, stood and gazed in wonder and amazement at unbelief. Now, I don't know how to really wrap my brain around this, the very God of creation staring at his own creation and gazing in wonder that they don't believe in the one who made them. And he is amazed, it says, not at passive, I don't care, but remember a willful, I choose to believe something else rather than what is standing right here before me. That's amazing. They willfully chose a lie over what they knew to be true because they saw it. Now, I know in unbelievers, 
we could say, well, they're spiritually blind. They can't see. And I understand that. But when you think back through Israel's history, and that's why I wanted to read that passage from Jeremiah 2. These are the people of God. And over and over, they willfully chose to worship a golden calf instead of... And even, if you remember, said, this is the God who brought us over into the promise, I mean, out of Egypt. This is the God who brought us out of Egypt. This calf made out of our gold. They willfully chose a lie. And I just find this passage amazing that here's the Lord of glory, the God of all creation, standing, gazing in wonder and amazement at the unbelief of those who he made to glorify him. And I know that even their unbelief glorifies him, but I think it's something for us to consider. They've heard about, if not seen personally, the miracles that Jesus had performed. He just left this demoniac. Surely that kind of word travels fast. They knew that he had been teaching not just where rabbis teach, but he taught the rabbis without the credentials to do so and with great authority. Even the scribes and the Pharisees said, wow, what authority this man teaches with. They had had to hear possibly about him calming the storms. The woman with the issue of blood, Jairus' daughter, Because they even said in verse 2, where did this man get these things? They had seen him do things and they had heard him say things. And what wisdom, they said, is this which is given to him, that such works are performed by his hands. And instead of believing him, we read that they are offended at him. Isn't that interesting? Blatant unbelief. The willful belief of a lie. I think it's something we should stop to consider at times. How often is Jesus, and I don't know if this, I don't think I'm incorrect in saying, think about this. How often is Jesus gazing at unbelief, gazing at our unbelief in amazement? Wow. I mean, everything we've been given, all the blessings that he has bestowed upon us, the grace that he has shown us, the mercy that he gives us. And yet we still find ourselves rejecting the truth and believing lies. And I have to wonder at Jesus gazing at my unbelief. And the truth is we all have areas of unbelief. All, play, all of us have places we need to repent of, things we need to replace, things that we have replaced God with that we need repentance for. And we should seek God in forgiveness and trust the Lord. And especially in a few minutes, trust God to wash over you with grace as you partake of the Lord's Supper. That's why we come to this table. We have forgiveness, even for our unbelief. <clears throat> Jesus died for our unbelief. And we're in pretty good company, if you remember, even looking through Mark. Those who walked with him every day, his followers, those who left everything to follow him, Jesus at that time, we could say, gazed in amazement at their unbelief. Oh, you have little faith. 
I mean, right in the middle of a storm, they feared for their lives. So it's an interesting thing to think through. But I don't think we should just dismiss it as, well, these are people that were just unbelievers. Because many of them were, but possibly many of them weren't. And the truth is, and we're going to look at something in our confession in a few minutes, in closing, we all struggle with times of unbelief. Let's just think about this a little bit closer and some characteristics of this unbelievable unbelief. And I've sort of already alluded to this, but number one, it denies the obvious. This has to be what's so bewildering about this unbelief in Nazareth. They saw it, it was obvious, they knew it was true, yet they chose the creature rather than the creator. They rejected the truth of God for the lie of Satan. And so in all unbelief, there are two things going on. A bad opinion of God, but a good opinion of oneself. In fact, isn't that just what happened in the garden? Adam and Eve knew the truth, and they knew God. But we read, but the woman saw that the tree was good for food, it was a delight to the eyes, and it was desirable to make one wise. So she had a higher opinion of her thoughts and what she could see than what God had said and who God was. So all unbelief has at its core a bad opinion of God and a very good opinion of oneself. In fact, what a testament here to the will of man. I continue to be amazed at how many people who call themselves Christians and go to church every week want so much to do with their will and want to glorify their will in spiritual matters. And it's interesting, if you go through and just do your own study of the will of man in Scripture, almost always you'll find the will of man is rejecting the will of God. And that's kind of what you get. Luke 7 and 30. The Pharisees and the lawyers rejected the will of God for themselves, not having been baptized by him. They, they had a will, and they exercised it. And what they do with it, they rejected God. In John chapter 5. And the Father himself who sent me has testified of me. You have neither heard his voice at any time, nor have you seen his form. But you do not have his word abiding in you, because whom he sent, him you do not believe. You search the scriptures, for in them you think you have eternal life, and these are they which testify of me. But you are not willing to come to me that you, have, that you might have life. <clears throat> over and over, if we read about man's will in scripture, it's in opposition to God's will. John chapter 1. We read that Christ came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But all who did receive him, those who believed his name, he gave the right to become the children of God. Those who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but those who were born according to the will of God. Once in Colossians 2, verse 23, in the King James Version of the Bible, Paul refers to what he calls will worship. They're will worshipers. He said it has, a, it has a great show, and if you want people to look at you and think something good of you, the ESV translates it self-made religion. 
So if you want to go back and say, what are you talking about a good opinion of oneself? It's self-made religion. And at the end of the day, we either are worshiping ourselves or worshiping God. Because if we choose to refuse God and worship him, then the only choice is we've chosen for ourselves something to worship, which ultimately is ourselves. We do like Israel did, and we've built a God for ourselves. We've built a Jesus for ourselves. We haven't used wood or stones or gold, but we've built up an image in our minds of who we think God is, and we worship that God. Again, that's why I think it's so important that we practice the kind of worship we practice. And up front, I want to be clear what Jesus we're worshiping. The one born of the Virgin Mary. The one suffered under Pontius Pilate. The one who was crucified, dead, and buried. Three days later, he rose from the dead. I want to confess that together every week because I want us to be clear, this is the Jesus we are worshiping. It's not one we've made up. It's one he's testified about in the scriptures. In case we have new people, when God sends us visitors, I want them to know this church worships the Jesus that's in, in the Bible, not just one that has been made up. So this unbelievable unbelief denies the obvious and, of course, in turn, rejects that which is undeniable. And I like that the Bible clears this up for us. It says not only did they reject him, but they are offended at him. And not his teaching and not his miracles, but him. And this word offended means scandalous. So literally, in his hometown, those who knew him, they were scandalized by him, his person. They willfully chose to believe a lie rather than what was obviously before them and willfully rejected that which they shouldn't have been able to reject. In, a, in their willful unbelief, they considered Jesus to be a scandal. Now that's interesting because in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, Paul said, we preach Christ crucified to the Jews a stumbling block and to the Greeks foolishness. It's the same word, stumbling block, scandal. Why was Jesus a scandal to the Jews? Because though he undeniably fulfilled the prophecies of the Messiah, all of them, he failed to meet man's standard. He failed to meet their self-made religion. The thing that the God that they had built in their mind, the Messiah they had built, Jesus didn't fit that. He perfectly fit the scriptural view and the scriptural qualifications of Messiah. But to the Jews, he was a stumbling block. And to the Greeks, we're even told he was foolishness. So he is, Jesus is, was and is an affront to will worship or self-made religion. So all unbelief is either a good opinion of oneself or usually both a good opinion of oneself and a bad opinion of God. Men have decided the Messiah would never reject their self-righteousness, their religiosity. Yet we read the very stone which men rejected has become their chief corner. And that word scandal was also 
a word used in the building world, in the construction world. It's a reference to stones. So you might say in search for good stones, whenever a flawed one was discovered, it was cast out of the pile of good stones because it was scandalous. And so Jesus quotes Psalm 118.22 concerning himself. The stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. The stone which the men saw as scandalous, God put in place because it's the chief cornerstone. What men call scandalous, God has brought down as grace. Again, self-made religion, self-will worship. Men coming up with their own God, their own ideas. They have to reject God and fill that gap with a lie. And for the Jewish nation, when Christ come, they didn't realize the one they were casting out was the very one that God had sent to be the chief cornerstone. He was scandalous. They were right in considering him a scandal. They just were wrong in understanding where the scandal was supposed to fit. In Ephesians 2, we read that God has built the church on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone. I hope that you are not scandalized by Jesus or embarrassed by him. And if you have been, I pray that God will open your eyes and turn your will away from yourself to him. Because it's the only way your will will be bent correctly is for God to bend it. Again, thankfully, Jesus died for our wills that were broken in our bad decision-making. He died for all that, and it's forgivable. Thirdly, this unbelievable unbelief quenches the spirit of renewal. And this is very interesting, and sometimes I struggle with what to do with this, but verse 5, he could do no mighty works there except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. So Jesus was in his town with his people, having just spent long, grueling hours healing, teaching, resurrecting the dead. And now he's in Nazareth, not for a show, but for the purpose of God. And he's met with unbelief. And he's even considered a scandal by his own people. He still lays his hands on a few and heals them. But you have to wonder, what would the mighty work have looked like? Because it says he could do no mighty works there. But he still healed some people. And no doubt some still had to believe because of his work. And so I'm careful in saying this next statement because I certainly don't believe that we're able to um, hinder God from doing what he wants to do. So I'm very cautious always to, I don't say things like, just let God fill in the blank, as if God needs you to let him do something. But this is scriptural that this unbelief in some way hindered the mighty works of God. I mean, we can't deny that this says to us, because of their unbelief, he did no mighty works there. And I think, not for me to... um, crack the whip and say let's get busy doing better believing and better works but rather 
that we ought to seek God about our own unbelief and the hindrances possibly is causing in our families, our community, and our church. Not that we can fix that, but God can fix it. So we go to him and search out, have God to search our hearts and give us repentance for our sin of unbelief where it exists. Because it's not just a passive denial, remember. It's an active choice of lies over truth. And again, our wills are broken. So often our wills are not what they should be. And possibly our belief of the lie and our belief in ourself, in our own self-made religion at times, is quenching the spirit of, of renewal that Christ brings to his people. And again, I don't know how to put that because I don't want it to sound like God's sitting around waiting on us before he can act. But also I believe that this is put here for a purpose. And we ought to pay attention and pray that God would quench the lies and give us greater belief in his truth. And any time we feel ourselves in a sense that we are replacing God with something that's not true, that he would give us repentance, that we would come back to the truth. I want to know more about him, right? I don't know if it's in our hymn book, but there's a song that says that, an old hymn. More about Jesus, I would know. I mean, that's why we come to worship. We want to learn more about him, right? We want to understand the scriptures better. And so I want to, in saying that, remind you of this beautiful these beautiful statements from our confession. Because this is the truth. Again, all of us do this. There are times when we believe the lie instead of the truth. And we don't even realize we're doing that, but we've inserted something less than God in the place of God. And we believe that rather than God's truth. And our confession recognizes that that's the way this flesh is. And the scriptures recognize that, and so they pull this from the scripture. I think... Um, this is the chapter on repentance and confession. It says, There is no one who does good and does not sin. Even the best may fall into great sins and offenses through the power and deceitfulness of the corruption in them, along with the strength of temptation. <clears throat> Therefore, God has mercifully, mercifully provided in the covenant of grace that believers who sin and fall will be renewed through repentance to salvation. I mean, this is a beautiful promise of Scripture. We, be, we will be renewed. This saving repentance is a gospel grace in which those who are made aware by the Holy Spirit of the many evils of their sin by faith in Christ humble themselves for it with godly sorrow, with hatred of it, and with self, self-loathing. I mean, it's so contrary to, to modern <coughs> thought, isn't it? I don't want to go to church to become self-loathing. Well, this is the way this works. God gives us grace and repentance and self-loathing that he might cleanse us and renew us and make us holy like Christ is. The world thinks that we're supposed to never have any downtime, any sadness, any sorrow. And the last thing we should do is feel bad about our sin, right? 
But I love that the confession is very clear. Hey, this is what the Holy Spirit does for those of God's people who find themselves in unbelief, in willful unbelief, in times of sin. God, by the Spirit, humbles us, gives us godly sorrow and hatred of our sin and self-loathing because our sin is not good. And it causes us, it says, to pray for pardon and strength of grace and determine an endeavor by provisions from the Spirit to live before God in a well-pleasing way in everything. I mean, thanks be to God for that, right? Because that's what we need. Again, we can't come up with this ourselves. So I'm not just telling you do better. I want you to hear what this says. This is what God does for his people. This is what's so sad about Israel and what Jeremiah said. Hey, even the preachers quit telling people this stuff. The pre- my preachers and my prophets quit saying to the people, where is the Lord? Look to the Lord. So we preach repentance because repentance, the confession continues, must continue throughout our lives because of the body of death and its activities. So it is everyone's duty to repent of each specific known sin specifically. Because God has made full provision through Christ in the covenant of grace to preserve believers in their salvation. Thus, although there is no sin so small that it is undeserving of damnation, yet there is no sin so great that it will bring damnation on those who repent. This makes the constant preaching of repentance necessary. And so here we are today. Why should we, as the people of God, look at a passage where Jesus is gazing in amazement at unbelief? Because there are times in all of our lives when we are the ones that Christ could be staring at in unbelief and amazement at our unbelief. But for us, we have mercy and repentance from God so we can confess our sin and he is faithful just to forgive us of our sin and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. What a beautiful thought. So as we get ready to come to the table, I want you to carry that with you. So you've been in unbelief. So there are plenty of areas in your life that you don't believe God the way you should. Well, that's why we're here. Because we all swim uh, in that sea. All right? And we all need the same grace that God's about to pour out on us and has been and will as we uh, eat of his body and take a drink of his blood. Because that's how we are healed. So let's pray. Father, we thank you for all of your blessings. God, we do thank you for Christ. And the testimony of scripture that we read, even when we read of things like unbelievable unbelief, it causes us to be more astounded that we ever believe and that you give us right understanding and true knowledge. And that we look to this God-man Jesus and we think about how he came to this earth and the life that he lived, a perfect righteousness, sinlessness, yet died in the place of those of us who were not righteous and who have sinned and who never had any hope of catching the eye of God. Yet, for some reason, in eternity past and things we know nothing of, we have done just that. Not by our own merits, but by His own free grace and your own free will and desire. You've chosen to save us through Jesus Christ. You've chosen to look on us in favor and punish him. And we are grateful for that. The one who took our place is worthy of our praise. 
and our glory and our honor. And so today we give Him that and we celebrate together the forgiveness that we have and the life and the grace and the resurrection of life. Everything that we have in Him as we partake of those simple elements that you've consecrated and told us to enjoy and by which you give us grace. We just want to joyfully partake today together as your people and feast off of your son and the word that we have heard in Jesus we pray.